Well, thanks for joining us again today, friends. It's the Hopecast, and we are excited to bring you yet again another hope-filled comeback story and conversation that we believe will radically change your life. We are your hosts, Lance and Allie Lang. That's our signature move. It is. It's a signature intro. Good to see you today. How are you? Uh, me? Yeah. I'm fantastic. You know, it's been a busy day, but in our world, busy equals progress and growth. That's right. And so it's, you know, it's always a good day. Great. Tell them who this show's brought to you then by. Okay, I will. <laughs> okay. The Hopecast is brought to you by Hope is Live Ministries, HIA's 18 intentional next level sober living homes in five cities across three states and provides community-based support groups called Finding Hope. For loved ones of addicts in 13 different locations and even online, and you can find out more about Hope is Alive at hopeisalive.net or more about Finding Hope at www.findinghope.today. But you know what I'm really excited about? What? A new announcement. Something new that's out, I hope it's a lot. Tell them about it. Yeah, so we are very excited here to announce that we are venturing online with our program. Hope is Alive Online. It takes the major tenets of our Hope is Alive mentoring program and um, takes them in an online community-based format that our uh, groups will start together. They'll work through a six-month process, the recovery process. You'll have the opportunity to work the 12 steps of AA as well as your process addictions, and you will build a community throughout that time there. You'll have program guides that walk you through it every single week, multiple times a week. And so maybe you are a mom and a dad or a dad that can't move into our houses. Um, you will get the opportunity to get sober at home. That's right. That's with the is alive. I online. love it. I love the idea to get sober at home. And in fact, I just had lunch with an individual and this, um, on, on this, you know, not, not to break anonymity by any means, but this is a pastor mm-hmm. who has struggled and he is not in a place to check in somewhere, but needs really what we provide. And I was able to tell him about HA online and he's going to sign up and it's going to join the program and it's going to be a perfect fit for him because not only is he struggling with alcohol, but he was also struggling with some other things as well. And that's just a perfect example that anybody anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world can benefit from HIV online. Isn't that crazy? Anywhere in the world. I'm excited about it. We're talking wow. all things recovery, by the way, today, and all things uh, treatment, aftercare, and what goes on, what are the important tenets of somebody's aftercare program, what are folks not doing that they need to be doing, and we're going to hear an incredible comeback story. And I'm really excited to have this young man, in the room with us today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about our friend Dylan Huffman from Stonegate Treatment Center. Dylan is the alumni coordinator at Stonegate Center, and that is right out of Azle, Texas, right outside of Fort Worth. Am I right? Yep. Perfect. And that is an incredible facility. We actually send a lot of folks to Stonegate, and uh, they refer a lot of folks back to us. So they have a great relationship with Stonegate. They do incredible work. He'll tell you all about that. But Dylan has an incredible comeback story of his own recovery journey, and he's going to tell a little bit of that today. But ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome to the Hopecast our friend, Mr. Dylan Hoffman. Thanks, Lance. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me out today. Um, I love what you guys are doing, and I'm always happy to be of service and come out and do stuff like this. Um, But yeah, just a little bit about my story. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I I always started off by saying, like, I, I never had, like, any trauma 
or, or anything in particular that led to me drinking and drugging. Um, really, I just simply like to change the way that I feel. Yeah. Um, you know, I probably, from, from the time I was even a little kid, you know, I, I was rebellious. I, you know, just ADD, ADHD, you know, really hyperactive. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I started drinking, you know, probably or first experimenting when I was like 12 years old, um, you know, my family just like sneaking into like their liquor cabinet or, you know, at family gatherings. And I can remember one time in particular that we had like a family get together and they were all drinking margaritas. And, you know, I, I just kept like pestering them to like have just like, let me have like a sip, you know? Yeah. And they're like, fine. All right. Well, you know, whatever. Here, here you go. And, um, you know, had a sip. And then next, you know, I'm over at the machine, just like behind their backs, like just, you know, <laughs> just pouring glass after glass. And um, that, that's the first time that I remember, you know, you know, feeling um, like a buzz or that head change from from drinking. Yeah. And um, I loved it. You know, like, I love that feeling. Um, like, there's really no way to even describe just just I, I felt like I had arrived, you know, mm-hmm. so to speak of like now I know that anytime that I have this opportunity in the future, um, I'm going to take it, you know, and, and from there on out, you know, as I was, uh, you know, getting older, um, hanging out with friends, I always seemed to like have older friends too. Like I didn't really, you know, run with, with guys that were my age, you know, like even when I was you know, 13, 14, having, you know, friends that were 16, you know, 17, just neighborhood friends. And, um, you know, that pattern just continued, you know, stealing beers from, you know, like, you know, you know the adults sure. and, um, you know, I smoked weed the, four, the first time when I was 14 years old. Like, I remember sneaking out, you know, one night and going to this, you know, my buddy's house and um, and smoking weed. And um, the same, you know, I had that same experience of, you know, just that relief. And I felt comfortable in my own skin. And, like, I, I just, I loved it. Um, you know, I laughed and, and had a, you know, a great time, you know, and um, really just enjoyed it. And the same thought crossed my mind. Like anytime I have an opportunity to, to get high again, like and, and smoke some weed, like I'm going to take it. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, like I had a normal, you know, childhood, like I said, you know, great parents had an older brother, you know, played sports, you know, had hobbies like to hunt, like to fish. Um, I was living in Georgia at the time and, um, you know, loved the outdoors. And what I found was as I was getting into high school, more and more, I was, I was, distancing myself from my hobbies and the things that I, that I really love to do. And I was, I was smoking weed and drinking, you know what I mean? Like I was putting that above what I really, you know, love to do. And, um, I ended up moving to Texas. Um, I believe it was the end of my sophomore year in high school. And funny thing, I actually, um, had lived in Flower Mound previously. My dad's a geologist. We happened to just move around a lot. So I moved to, to Texas, was in middle school, moved back to Georgia where I went to elementary school. And then I moved back to Texas. Wow. So like I kind of reconnected with those friends that, you know, I was in middle school with. And um, sure enough, everyone was just already getting, you know, experiments and kind of getting into the party scene. And, um, you know, I really just took off from there. Um, you know, started experimenting with other drugs, you know, ecstasy, like psychedelics and um you know i just it was like each step that i took it further the more that I, I wanted to to try new new drugs and 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 have that new experience and um you know long story short um my junior year in high school um i was always that guy that people came to like hey man can you give me this can you give me that wow. and um you know I, i'd always hook them up and um 
what ended up happening is, is I was working at this like burger place, flipping burgers, and like, that was one of my first jobs. And I was like, it, it just I, it doesn't even make sense that I'm always going and getting this stuff for other people. Like I should just sell it myself. And and that really began the journey of what was going to just I think alter the course of my life and really lead me down um, the path of just addiction and, and drug abuse. And and so I started selling drugs my junior year of high school and. Um, you know, quickly just continue to take it a step further. Um, had a buddy and, um, you know, I, I, we just started selling, you know, a lot of party drugs and, um, my life just became very chaotic, you know, and by this time, my family, you know, they were like, things are getting out of control. Lots of, you know, fights at home and needless to say, my senior year of high school, I actually moved out of, out of, out of the house and was living in hotels. And, um, you know, my, my parents, you know, just didn't know what to do with me. And, um, you know, I was making enough money to like pay for hotels and, and pretty much all my own stuff. And, um, you know, gosh, my life was just so hectic and crazy. Just that whole lifestyle of, of the women, the money, the drugs. And I just became so obsessed and so hooked on just doing whatever I wanted to do. Like no one could tell me what to do. And that's really just where I feel like that rebellious spirit just, you know, flourished. And while all that stuff came to a head, the very, into that year, um, I ended up, you know, of course, drawing attention from like the, the, the police, yeah, you know, what happens. Yeah. And, um, so I actually had a SWAT team, um, kick in my parents' door. I, I was at their house one night, hadn't been there in a long time and, uh, they'd been watching that house and, and they kicked in the door. And, um, it's kind of funny. I actually remember like, I thought I was getting robbed. So like I hopped up and, um, and, and, you know, these like SWAT team, members you know police come flooding in i i thought they were like robbers or something and like i remember i i punched the first guy that i saw just a shadow and i hit just like hard plastic like oh, helmet and at that time enough had come in that the room was lit with like you know the, the lights the flashlights they had and they just picked me up and just body slammed me you know what i mean and they arrested me and i i, I caught a couple drug charges um and and went to jail and um no, not really no yeah. like i mean they definitely like manhandled me yeah. you know what i mean like I they, they picked me up slammed me um i probably had like four cops on my back i remember my back just like popping like all my vertebrae was like, pop, 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 pop. um and uh you know they took me outside neighbors are outside you know all the lights are going wow. it was kind of a big spectacle they, they handcuffed my parents you know it was a you know it was just a bad situation and um you know, that was the first real true consequence that I experienced, you know, and for the longest time I thought I was above the law, you know, I thought nothing bad was going to happen to me. You know, I'm too smart to, uh, to get caught and just had a lot of ego and pride, you know, around that. How old were you then? So I was, I was 18 years old at that point. Um, or I had just maybe 17 actually. Wow. I wasn't 18 yet. Wow. So you talked about, uh, you know, 12 years old. That's young. Yeah. And you talked about something you said you started isolating from um, your friends. And so I was just wondering, because there's so many parents or loved ones that listen to this that wonder, like, hey, if my kid's in that same spot, what are some warning signs maybe that happened with you um, that, that looking back on it, you could say, hey, mom and dad, this is this is what you need to look out for for your 12 or 14 or 16 year old that might be in the same situation as me. Yeah. So. I would say just loss of interest in, in what you know your son or daughter loves to do. You know, for me, that was, you know, playing golf, that was hunting, that was fishing, that was, you know, 
just all the different hobbies that I had and they could tell that more and more I was just hanging out with just certain people, you know, losing some friends and, and just really distancing myself from my, even my parents, you know, just like only being around them I had to be and, um, and, and just losing interest in, in things that they, they knew that I cared about. That's was, weird, but yeah. Cause I can remember quitting basketball my senior year of high school. And yeah. it was my, you know, my first love, love the game. And then it was my senior year, halfway through the season, and I quit. And I think looking back, uh, certainly, you know, we believe parents don't carry any of that blame. We, we're making the decisions of our own, but it's certainly a warning sign that something's not right. And I think on the inside, all I was really doing was quitting to create more time for me to get out. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And, and, and that's just another excuse that was just getting in my way. Um, and I always regret, you know, that decision to quit. That I'm not a quitter. And I quit that, and that was a big, a big warning sign. So uh, let's jump back to I'm, I'm just seeing this visual. <laughs> I can't get my mind over this. You're 17, 18 years old. They just busted in the door, slammed you on your back, and I'm sure your, your poor parents are outside. I mean, what are the feelings like going through that and kind of what happened next? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of emotions, a lot of feelings, um, you know, couldn't believe that that was actually happening just because I was so delusional about my situation, thinking that that was never going to happen. And it actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I knew that the police were on to me. There was a private investigator that was hired uh, by um, a, a specific individual due to like a drug related incident. And I, I knew that like there was a lot of heat on me, you know, and I remember telling myself like I've got to like I've got to get rid of this stuff like I've got to like kind of start working my way out because I actually knew that like you know things are probably going to start getting pretty bad and so I was actually in that process and just had that gut feeling that like something bad's going to happen I, I even remember that night I was out partying and um, you know snuck into my parents house at like four in the morning because I was like hammered drunk and didn't want to drive all the way across town to my hotel, still had a key. They didn't even know I was there. And, um, you know, so that's how I found myself in that situation. And like I said, they'd been watching that house and uh, lots of emotions, got to jail, you know, and just thinking like, wow, like my life is, um, you know, um, about to radically change for the worse. Wow, wow. So tell us what happened after that. You get, you get picked up, you have the charges, you go back to high school? Um, so I, this was, I had just graduated okay. I had bar- and I barely graduated. You know, I had missed so much school just because I was, you know, living kind of this double life of like a typical high school student. And then like this, you know, this drug dealer. And, um, so like I, I, you know, had a lot of school to make up and just barely graduated. And it was probably a month into the summer when that happened. Wow. Now, have you had plans to college, anything like that? No, at that point, it's like drugs had become such a big part of my life. Like that was the only thing I was thinking about. You know, I wasn't. Yeah, and, I, and by that time, I quit playing golf. I was on the you know, golf, you know, the, the high school team. And, um, you know, I quit probably my sophomore year and, and just put all that stuff behind me. I was just, you know, committed to yeah. just already was addicted to the, the, the chase of dealing as you were the drugs himself. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I loved, like, the prestige sure. that I thought went along with it. You know, I felt like everyone always, always wanted to, to be around me. I always got invited to the parties. I just, like, you know, I, I thought I was you know, super popular. I'm just, like, super cool. Yeah. 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 You know, and that's it. You Everybody know, wants to go in there. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And, um, and that was a big realization I had once I got arrested and got out. You know, my parents bailed me out, of course, and, you know was that like no one really cared you know it was like all these people that i thought like you know really 
um, wanted to be around and really cared for me, like, you know, it was pretty obvious that, like, no one really cared, like, that, you know, what had happened. Um, and, uh, you know, things just continued to get, to get worse from there. That's a tough feeling. You talked a lot about numbing feelings. Uh, it changed the way you felt early on from putting Malcolm in the margarita machine to, <laughs> to you know, uh, dealing drugs. And, and so setting in the middle of that feeling of, wow, these friends aren't really what I thought they were, I would imagine that that and maybe some other things prolonged or, or maybe stepped you up into even deeper addiction from there. So tell us what took you to, to rock bottom to where you are today. Absolutely. Um, you know, and just like you said, I felt even worse at the time. So what did I turn to my solution, which is drugs and alcohol? And I just continued to numb and blot out, you know, everything that much more. And actually a month later, I was in a serious car accident and uh, rolled my car a couple times and, and hit a tree probably going 50 miles an hour. And um, you know, that was just another incident where I, I could have been seriously injured, could have, you know, easily hurt someone else. I actually had a friend with me at the time. And, um, you know, thankfully we just got, you know, banged up and it was nothing serious, but um, got a DWI. And, um, you know, from there um, began the whole, um, you know, process of being on probation and dealing with the courts. That was my first real experience. Now I have two charges in two different counties. And um, so being the, the drug addict that I was, you know, knowing now that I, I can't drink because I have a breathalyzer that I have to, you know, blow into all the time. I, uh, I get, you know, drug tested once a month. I immediately, you know, started turning to harder drugs to, you know, get around the, uh, the drug tests. Yeah. And um, I can't remember if it was a conscious decision or if it just kind of happened, you know, um, naturally, I guess you could say. But, um, you know, very quickly I started, you know, um, going to harder drugs, like I said, snorting heroin, um, you know, uh, just hanging out with even rougher crowds of people, you know. And um, it wasn't a couple months later that I was, I was shooting heroin. And, um, you know, that was like I never would have thought that, you know, I would have done that. But. Even the first time that I, I shot up, it was, you know, I always hear from people just that feeling. Like, it's, it's you know, um, you can't describe it. And, and I was hooked. Um, you know, I totally was able to just check out from reality and all my problems that I had. Um, so it, it, it just allowed me to do that, just check out from reality and all the different problems that I had going on in life. And, um, man, that pattern continued. Um, and, and once I started doing that, it's my first treatment center, too, like around that time. Um, and, um, you know, that was my first kind of introduction to the 12 steps and, you know, um, just spirituality and all these different things. But like, I wasn't trying to hear it. You know, like I was still convinced oh, that yeah. I, I was 18 at that oh, time. Still, yeah. Right around the time, yeah. yeah. It was that later that year yeah. um, after the car wreck, actually, I went to treatment and it's a um, tough year in your life. Yeah. Stretch for sure. That's and that's when I can look back and say that like I crossed this line between like a hard uh, user to you know the real deal addict and alcoholic. You know because before that it was it was progressive. I was moderate, and then I was a hard drinker, and then at some point I crossed this line that I could never go back. So I think that's so interesting. We talked about this, and you can answer the question. I always believe that trauma is the trigger. And you started by saying that you didn't have the trauma that a lot of folks, and I understand that, you know, our stories are probably some, somewhat similar, or maybe the, the toughest rock bottoms. But you had a trauma, traumatic moment with the cops, with the car accident, where you were going from experimentation and abuse, but you just said that that really kicked, that year kicked you into some full-blown dependency. Yeah, absolutely. Trauma really was the trigger into that. 
Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I could see it, um, you know, at that time, you know, um, being a, a leading reason as to why I continue to do it that much more. But initially, you know, I feel like I was just, you know, different from the time that I was a kid in the way that, like, I just love that feeling of, of, of changing my mind state and, like, how I felt. And um, that was simply it. Because other kids, it's like they were drinking, you know, they were smoking weed, but yet, like, it wasn't that significant to them. You know, like it was, it was fun. It was cool, but like it wasn't something they felt the need to do all the time. And for me, it, it you know, it just it, it, it was different. You know, I related so much to that. I, I reacted differently than other people. Mm-hmm. Allison. Yeah, I, th- I think it's really interesting though that you keep on using the word numb, right? You wanted to numb the way that you were feeling. Is there any like feelings looking back on it? Was it anxiety? Was it just? The acceptance, like you said, of just being accepted and wanted by your peers and friend, friendships, really, that were given to you. So you had some things probably that came along with it that felt good, right? Not just yeah. the, the overall feeling of being able to numb out, but um, the friendships that it brought, the women, the money, right, you, you mentioned um, that it brought. But, you know, ultimately, it's interesting because there's so many things, right, like you just touched on the cracks and the DWI, the probation, you know, all of this by the time that you were 18 years old and really a lot of times we don't even see people have any consequences that young and so for you to not to not choose you know to instead of uh going towards recovery was there ever a thought maybe when you were in the car accident or dwi probation was there ever a thought of maybe now's my time to surrender Absolutely. You know, I, I would always emerge remorseful with a firm resolution that like, I'm not going to do this again. Um, but, you know, it talks a lot in the big book about how without this solution of drugs and alcohol to, to fix the way that I feel, I become restless, irritable, discontented. And then that would, would be set off. And then the next thing would be that mental obsession. My brain would tell me like, you know, what's going to fix that feeling. You know, what's going to change that. And inevitably knowing that, it was going to probably cause me harm. It, it, it outweighed having to sit in those feelings and, and those emotions. Wow. Did you have any sense of sobriety along the way? Very short stints, you know, whether I was in treatment for a month or jail for a month or, or a couple of days, that was about it. And it was always, I would emerge remorseful with a firm resolution that like, I've got to change. And it wasn't, but a day or two later that I picked it back up again. And it was always, well, this time will be different. You know, this time I'll drink like a normal person. This time, like I'll, 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 I'll moderate my use, but um, it, it never played out that way. Did you always know that you had a, a, a substance abuse problem? I think I was delusional at first around it of thinking that like, this is just circumstantial. I never should have gotten that wreck. I never should have gotten arrested. Um, and I lived in that delusion, I think, until I was probably 20. And like by the time I went to um, my second or, or probably yeah second treatment centers when it started to sit uh set in the reality of like i do have a problem and like i i am an addict wow so good no i was just gonna say that is so interesting because as you when you were 18 right you talked about the first snorting heroin and then i think you said shooting up heroin um so there was a two-year stretch there that you were like ah, maybe yeah. Everybody does it. <laughs> yeah, and that's the that's the crazy thing is like I was delusional in, in the fact that um, 
just that that was normal. Yeah. You know, like I knew that like that's not normal, but at the same time, it was like my brain was telling me that like it's not that bad. Yeah. Like it's not that bad, and you know. I'm still able to do a lot of the things that normal people are. And like, I was able to hide it and, you know, from like at work and yeah. in situations like that, obviously my family and the people that knew me close knew that like, yeah, he's, he's struggling. He's got some problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just lived in that delusion. I think until I was probably you know, 20 years old. Yeah. Isn't that crazy what our brains can do to us? Because whether it be drugs or alcohol or maybe overeating or maybe pornography or any of these things that we talk about, we can constantly tell ourselves that this isn't a problem, uh, even though there's people around us maybe that are saying otherwise. Or, or things that are causing consequences. Yeah. And uh, lives that are being damaged along the way. And I think we don't see the force for the truths for our decisions and our impact and the consequences of our lives and the damage that we're causing people and and normally something happens to shake us um, to where we have to s- just set in our truth for a moment. And I'm curious to know what that was for you. <laughs> yeah, so um, this pattern just continued, and I'll, I'll kind of jump to it. But over the next couple of years, from the time that I was 20 to 23, um, I went to another treatment center, did some sober living, um, things would start to get good. And I had this pattern of when things got good, like, I don't need to do this anymore. And I never really um, got all the way through the 12 steps, never fully saw it all the way through, never fully committed. I was always like 80% of the way there. Where like, I got one one foot in and, and one foot out. I need this only for right now, it's temporary. And inevitably I would relapse and that would lead to another year of just active addiction. Wow. And there was a time where I was I was homeless in California. I, I relapsed at a sober living, um, moved out there with this girl that I knew in high school and just to get away. You know, I started doing things like that. You know, like I'm gonna change my location, I'm gonna change people, I'm gonna change, you know, this and that, and like hopefully I'll have a, a new start and, and have that intention once again of I want things to be different this time. And um, I ended up getting out there and uh, pretty much became homeless with this girl that I was in a relationship with. Like, yeah, I had a vehicle, but like we were sleeping at 10 at night. And we were stealing, you know, bottles of liquor, you know, finding ways to get money just to get drugs. And that was a really low spot in my life. My family was just like, you know, um, there's nothing else we can do. We, we tried to help him. And, um, and, and there would be these periods, you know, that was a period where they're like, there's nothing we could do. But then I would reach out and like beg them to like help me. And then like eventually they, they would cave. And I would just, I was really good at manipulating, yeah. you know, just like a lot of addicts and alcoholics are. And, um, you know, then I moved to San Antonio to be near them. And um, I was still with that same girl and um, ended up getting an apartment and um, just trying so hard to have a normal life, but still, you know, behind closed doors, you know, I'm, I'm doing things that aren't normal. You know, I'm shooting heroin, I'm, yes, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a thief, I'm a liar. You know, I, I was really good at keeping this this false persona or just being completely fake, you know, two-faced um, around people to where I, I can, I was really good at seeming like a good guy that like had his life somewhat in order, but then behind the doors, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm the complete opposite of that. Um, and I was really good at fooling people like that, but you know, it would always eventually come out, you know, whether I'm like nodding off at work and they're like, this just isn't normal. And then, you know, I get fired or, or, or whatever, but did mom and dad ever do something that really helped you? Eventually, yes. I'm sure they did along the way help you take lots of steps. And yes, you didn't finish for whatever reason, but 
Yeah. So I'll go into that. Um, I had another car accident um, probably when I was uh, 22 in San Antonio and um, experienced pretty much another year of just like basically, well, I wasn't completely homeless, but just like barely making it. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, then um, they actually helped me get another car. Horrible idea. I don't know how I got them to do that. Um, and they, they knew, but I was just really good at like, okay, this time's going to be different, you know? And I guess I was 23 at that time and, um, had another car accident. Both times, um, I was, I was high on heroin and, and ran a red light and just T-boned, um, T-boned somebody pretty bad, you know? And, um, and at that point, I remember I was 23 years old and, um, I just, I was in just such a bad state, you know, I had lost an, another vehicle. Um, thankfully they're catching charges. I look back like I should have, but you know, just, I guess I'm there for, you know, God was at work then I just didn't realize it, but I'm um, just being defeated. I, I can describe like the hopelessness, the defeat of, of my situation and just the misery of my solution had stopped working for me. Um, you know, I no longer could get high and, and have relief. I was getting high and I was still just completely miserable. Mm-hmm. And at that point, um, they were hesitant to help me, my family. And for a brief period, I was I was homeless again, actually living behind my dealer's house in the shed. Like, just bad. You know, basically to the point where I don't have to panhandle for, uh, for money. And um, had pawned pretty much everything I owned. And... Um, the only thing they were helping me with at that time was having my phone and the bill paid for. So I had my cell phone and, and, um, probably just to make you kind of, yes, exactly. Just know like I was alive, you know, and and over the years, it's like just the trauma to like my, my mom, my, my other family, just knowing that like I'm out there and it's tonight can be the night where we get that call where where he's dead. Like, you know, there was, um, a bad overdose over the course of those years. Um, just lots of consequences. And, um, and uh, so what happened was, is eventually my dad reached out and was like, you know, if, if you're willing to get help, like we will help you one last time. And I believe that was my fifth treatment center. And, uh, and at first I was like, nope, like I'm not doing that. I've tried it. It doesn't work. But then I got so miserable and so desperate and not to get like, you know, too graphic, but like I was, I remember trying to like, you know, shoot up and like my veins, I didn't have any veins left and just like, you know, just completely, um, just desperation and defeat, I finally made that decision of like, I'm gonna go try this one last time. I'm gonna try to get help. I think people just really don't understand the depths that we really go to when you're describing the struggle to find the vein and the homelessness and stealing. And it's, a, it's a real desperate, mm-hmm. desperate place. Yeah, I think it's so, uh, what you said, my solution had failed me. Yeah, I think is you know in in the journey of your story, um, just to hear you come to that point at twenty three, right? My solution had failed me, so you went to your fifth treatment center, and so you said yes to your dad saying we'll send you. Yeah. So initially, I was like, this isn't going to work. I don't want to try it again. Um, but things got so bad that I was like, this is my only option, or else like I'm going to be, you know, I just had. I, you know, maybe like a, a quick moment of clarity where like I knew that I was going to be one of these guys that's on the side of the road for the rest of my life. And I, I didn't want that. Um, and um, I accepted to go to treatment and he came and picked me up and um, they, they took me to treatment. And how long did you stay in treatment? 
So I was there a month, but I can tell you what was different that time is like I I wanted it with every ounce of my being. Like I was like, I'm gonna give this my absolute all because I knew what was on the line. You know, for me at that time it was life or death, um, or just you know permanent like insanity. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I got there, and this time, even though there were the other the previous two times, it was like each time I got more willing, more desperate. But this time it was like with every, you know, they say in the rooms that like you, you, you've done step one before, like you come into the rooms or to treatment. And, and that was me. You know, I was defeated. I, my life was unmanageable. I was hopeless. I was powerless. Yeah. And um, I got there and I was willing to do whatever they told me for however long. And um, I believe that's the attitude that is necessary for recovery and for change to actually happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got there and um, started really engaging in the groups and in the step work. And um, the biggest thing, um, and I, I kind of left this out, was, you know, I was raised Christian in a Christian household, had, had good parents. Sure. But from a very early age, I just turned my back on all that. And you know, over the course of the years, it's like I, uh, you know, there was definitely – you know, the Holy Spirit, I feel like at the time, or like I, I just had this wall up and like, I didn't want to let that wall down. And I knew that like I was, I was doing the wrong thing. And I had lots of guilt and shame, but I just always fought that. And at this point, like I just surrendered to it, you know, and, and I started exploring my spirituality and you know, my relationship with God. And, you know, I, uh, being at step three in treatment, you know, and I'll back up just a little bit, you know, doing step one, they, they laid it out of, you know, how, you know, I have this, this, this physical allergy and I have this phenomenon of craving. So like my body's different from other people. I have an abnormal mind. Like I'm basically, you know, insane. The sense that my mind keeps telling me that this is something different. And I was able to see the cycle of addiction. I was like, this makes sense. Like, this is why, you know, even though I don't want to get high anymore, I end up doing it again, right. you know, and it, and it finally just clicked as to like why I had been doing what I had been for so long because my parents would ask me, why do you keep doing this? You know, and like, I would just make up some excuse or some reason, but internally, like, I had no idea yeah. why. Mm-hmm. You know, there was times like I would go, um, go to the dealer and like, I would even stop halfway. Like in the very, like, you know, right before this time, like, right, I was like, I, I don't want to do this. But then like, I turn around and I turn around again. And like, there was definitely this, just this, you know, I was very conflicted. You know, but to go back, it finally made sense. Knew that like I had to give this a shot, the spirituality, a relationship with God, because like I said earlier, um, the other times in treatment, I would I would start to get into it, you know. But like I was, you know, it was like this is temporary, and just kind of um, just never committed to it. Yeah. And I always tried everything else. I was like, this is silly. This is dumb. If a doctor can't keep me sober, give me medication for psychiatrist. If if this, if that. You know, I, I tried everything of, of human aid, yeah. essentially. Wow. And um, finally just had the realization that, like, God's the one that's going to you know, save me. You know, what's interesting is, um, and I dealt with this with Lance a lot, it's really tough to decipher when your loved one's serious. <laughs> yes. You know? Like, when they're actually, because I heard it probably five thousand times i'm ready i'm ready i'm ready i'll do anything i'll do anything i'll do anything but um and and it would fail again and again and again and so i just wonder like is there anything and and you touched on a little bit like you were just completely willing so when your dad reached out to you and and was it him that offered the facility to go to the treatment center to go to yeah yeah and did you say okay i'm there i'm just 
or did you balk at it or did you say it's going to be my way like what what was it that allowed your parents to know that maybe this was this time was different um the way that like my dad describes it now you know talking with him is like he knew that he just had a gut feeling that things would get really bad I'm like i'm gonna lose my son you know and like no no parent wants that and um and my mom was at a point where she was just like, he's just not, like, he doesn't seem to get it. Like, they were trying to hold a boundary with, like, no more help. Like, figure it out. But, like, I wasn't figuring it out. And um, they both ended up deciding that um, and giving one last shot. And this is it. Like, he's got this one opportunity. Like, we're just going to have to let, like, turn him over to God. Like, did they tell you that? Not, no. I don't think then. Well, yeah, yeah. They actually did. My dad was like, this is it. Yeah. You know, like, this mm-hmm. is it. They, they definitely made that clear of, like, this is it. We've helped you so many times and um, you just, you know, they, they took it as like a slap in the face. Mm-hmm. You know, when, like you were saying with, with Lance and y'all's relationship, he seemed so convincing, right? Oh, yeah. Of like, things are going to be different. And the reason for that is because he meant it. Yeah. He meant it in that moment of, of this time, things will be different. I, I want things to change. You can hook him up to a lie detector test and he would pass it every single time because he means it. Mm-hmm. But that decision isn't isn't sufficient you know like that you know um it talks about in the big book of loss of choice and like we cannot bring into our mind with sufficient force the memory and suffering and humiliation of either, even a week or a month ago so what that means is eventually the time is going to come where like that consequence is not sufficient to keep him sober and he's going to cave he, he's going to use again he might be able to say no the first five times but come that 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 sixth time it's not going to be sufficient and um, he's going to pick it up again. And that was that was my truth, was that I meant it, but it wasn't sufficient for me to stay stopped. Wow. So was this, per- yeah. it was this perfect marriage of the desperation of really wanting to get sober and, and finding a, a place that really explained it to you, that you're not strange, right? There's not something wrong with you. This is the... This is the a physical craving, right, of your body and the way your mind is structured and all those things. You, you can, yeah. Yeah. The, the nature of the disease of addiction, you know, and um, I, I finally started to see it that way. Like, yes, I made those choices to do drugs and, and, and to drink. But at a certain point, like I said earlier, like when I crossed this line where like I was definitely a full-blown addict and alcoholic, I wasn't a hard drinker anymore that's when that loss of choice came, you know, to where like, as much as I wanted to, like, I, I needed a new solution, you know, which I found through, you know, working 12 steps. I think that's so beautiful what you just said, because I think there's probably wives and husbands and moms and dads out there that are listening to you that are like, it wasn't that they didn't lo- he didn't love me enough. Yes. It wasn't that he didn't want to stop. It wasn't that we weren't great parents. You know, like the, the shame is also lifted from from you, right? The addict, the alcoholic, but also from the family to say, hey, like, this isn't our 100% our fault. Because that's what people think, you yes. know? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. You know, um, it's like no matter how much, you know, you love your husband or, or your wife or, or your son, it's like um, that's just not sufficient. Mm-hmm. You know, like... Um, you know, um, for me, as much as I love like my family and, and all these other things in my life, like that wasn't sufficient for me to stop. Let me guide us home a little bit. Yeah. Because I think some things that I'm hearing today that I want to reiterate and give you a chance to talk about what you do today. And uh, me if you think I'm all here, but it's not, one thing I heard is that it never gets better. I think families need to hear that. And, and if there's addicts listening, know that it doesn't get better. Until you make the change, right? But, but that yeah. is just continues to get progressively worse in our addiction. 
but that when we become fully committed, then things begin to change. That's what I heard in your story. And then I think where you'll go from here is that one of the keys to recovery is finding purpose. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about that in your life, what you do today that keeps you kind of, you know, with that forward lean into recovery? And uh, tell us about exactly like what you're doing with and all that. For sure. So, you know, um, like you said, at first you have to have that foundation of complete surrender. And then from there, you know, this this new life, this, this program of action can be built. And um, just to touch on one thing, you know, it's like I, I finally had that desperation. I started working these steps, you know, like I got, you know, into a sober living home when I got out of treatment. And um, that's where I finally got connected to a power source that I call God today. Yeah. And, you know, and more and more the promises of, of, you know, the 12 steps became true in my life. And, um, you know, I began to feel just new power flow in. And like for once I started to have peace and direction and that just continued to materialize, you know. And um, like you said, purpose, I started to find purpose in recovery. And, um, you know, so being in sober living at probably the seven month mark, I was offered to become a house manager and I decided to take it. And by that time I was carrying the message, you know, I was starting to sponsor other men and that's really where I found purpose in all this was working with others. Like that's the 12 step, right? And, um, you know, being able to share my experience, strength and hope to help someone else that was just like me, who like didn't get it. Right. Cause like, I love going to a treatment center and talking and seeing that light turn on, like it turned on for me, like, that's why I keep doing this, you know, and like just being able to see that in someone else, like it just got me fired up. And like, I would leave with just this spiritual high, knowing that like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing God's work, you know, I mean? like God's able to use me today. Cause I never felt that I had never felt, you know, drugs and alcohol strip me of all um, sense of like decency and purpose and direction. Like I was so lost that this was finally something that, that gave me purpose in life and to jump forward, you know, I, I continued to be a house manager and probably around the time that I had uh, close to two years sober, I was, I was, you know, working at a warehouse doing some logistics and it was offered to me to, um, to uh, work at a treatment center called Stonegate. And, um, I knew some of the guys that worked there. I carried the message with them. I knew him from just kind of like our recovery circle and I prayed about it for probably two weeks and talked to my sponsor, my family. And they're all like, man, like, that sounds like a great opportunity. And I, and I took it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I started out as a recovery advocate there at Stonegate, which is like direct care, work with the guys, you know, there with them. And, you know, I, I just was, um, I guess, naturally good at it from, you know, being in sober living, obviously being an addict myself, like I was able to relate. I was able to share that experience with them really just help them through, um, you know, their treatment stay. And probably after about a year at working at Stonegate, I rolled into my new position, which is alumni coordinator. And, um, you know, that that's the first time that we've had that position at Stonegate. And I guess that was at the beginning of 2019. And um, so I was super excited to do that. And not only do I do the alumni, but the discharge side, side of things, so like sober living, aftercare. And that's where my recovery really flourished was in sober living because that's where I put everything into action. That's right. You know, that's where all the tools, all the knowledge that I gained in treatment were now put into place in the real world. And like, I thank God, you know, all the time for just going to sober living. I felt like 
he led me to the, the one that I went to in Fort Worth. And when I got there, there was a bunch of guys who were doing the deal. I mean, by that, like they were living this way a lot. They weren't just talking about it. Um, they were out there helping guys and working what I call like a solution-based program, which is like taking action. And um, so I just, I, I love the fact that like, since I felt so strongly about sober living that now I get to work and help guys make that decision to go because I know the impact that it has on people's lives who are willing to do that, who are willing to take that step to invest in the future and um, you know commit to sober living and doing aftercare and, and to have that support, that accountability, that guidance. You know, if it wasn't for those guys and the house manager and the other staff that were there, like helping me find a sponsor, helping me find a home group, helping me like get immersed into the local recovery community, honestly, I don't know if I would have gotten there. Wow. You know, like I'd like to think I would, but part of me thinks I don't know, yeah. you know, so I'm forever grateful for the guys and the sober living that I went to and um, you know, I'm still, you know, active in that recovery community. Yeah, you talk a lot about the community of it, which is a tremendous as- asset um, because ultimately, you know, if you do go somewhere after treatment um, that is unhealthy, you, you'll be right back to where you started, which I think that's what's so important um, about the whole plan, right? The detox of getting the drugs out of your system, the treatment, which is able to do the work, you know, the deep heart work that we talk about here, which is so important. They all build on each other, detox treatment, and then sober living, which really teaches you how to live your everyday life out in the real world, clean and sober. And so the fact that you're willing to do that, and now you get to use that story, which you just said, right? And, and probably twist a lot of guys and maybe gals arms <laughs> yeah. to get them to even take that step because a lot of people are opposed to it. They think I've gone to treatment. I'm done. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, you know, what I always tell them is, you know, I sat in that same chair, not that, but a chair just like it with, with a guy like me telling me, Hey man, like we really encourage you to go sober living, you know, and laying out all the reasons why. And then just being like, Hey, you know, I think I know what's best for me. Like, you don't really know me. I got, you know, we, everyone goes to treatment with all these plans and ideas of what it's going to look like afterwards. And, um, you know, the first couple of times I went to, to treatment, I just refused aftercare. And then the, the later times I started to accept and go. Um, but it took me a while to get there to see that, like, they really do care about me and they really do have my best interest. Like, they just want to see me get well. You know, I always looked at them as like, they're salesmen, you know, like all yeah. these just kind of delusional, this yeah. delusional thinking. I'm able to say, I get it. I've said that. I've done that, you know, and um, it really helps me build rapport and trust, you know, with the guys that are there at Stone Day. God used every step of the way mm-hmm. to give you the platform of today. That's right. I just rhymed. You did, that's right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think for anyone listening as we okay. wrap up that, you might be saying, well, my, my story is not addiction. I'll tell you, though, the real freedom is found in living a life of purpose. Yeah. And when you get to choose to live a life of pers- purpose, like Dylan's talking about, um, you live a life of freedom. And no matter what you're doing today, whether you're listening to this in an office, uh, whether you're on the road, uh, whether you're driving a truck, whether you're working with those in recovery, when you're leaning into to having a life of purpose – you'll live a life of freedom. And I, I just kind of three major points that I'm going to take away from, and then I'm going to give you a chance to give them some hope. There's one last. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The things that I'm hearing is fully committed, fully committed to the recovery process. 
taking action, a solution-based program of taking action and finding purpose, finding purpose in everything that you're doing. So, um, Dylan, one more time, give some folks some hope uh, that might be on the fence trying to figure this thing out, might have a kid that's trying to figure it out. I guess what would you say? So this program and, and going to treatment, doing sober living, um, you know, working a 12-step program, um, you know, it radically changed my life. And like you said, I found purpose in, in what I do today in working with others. And everything that I lost as a result of my addiction has been restored tenfold. You know, like I, I went to sober living with nothing, you know, just dead and like so much baggage. And the more, the closer that I drew to God and this program, the more God blessed me. And, you know, for once it was like, I just took my hands off the wheel and God did for me like what I could not do for myself. And, you know, it's a miracle that I'm here today and I'm alive and I'm able to help other people. You know, I'm married now. I have a daughter that's almost two years old. Come on. You know, like I have a roof over my head. Like, you know, I have a, I have a vehicle, all those things that I lost in my addiction you know, I, I now have today. And it's crazy because as a kid, you always say like, you know, I want my life to be like this. But today it's like I live a life that I never dreamed that I would have, you know, wow. and um, I'm just so grateful for it. I'm so grateful for all the people that helped me along the way. And, um, you know, it only continues to get better. I just hit four years a couple of weeks wow. ago. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. And I was just sitting, you know, in a lot of gratitude and reflection at just how far God has brought me through all these trials, all these things. And today I'm thankful that I'm an addict and alcoholic. You know, and like I always introduce myself as recovered because I no longer you know, suffer from that hopeless state of mind and body. But, you know, I know that it's all contingent upon my spiritual condition. That's right. You know, and, um, you know, yeah, I can lose it. But I know if I continue to do what I'm doing, helping others and, you know, being of service that like God's going to take care of me. And like I have peace with that today. Beautifully said, man. Way to give me some hope. That's a comeback story, I think. Yeah. Yes. That's an amazing comeback story. Dylan, thank you so much for everything that you do for so many people. You are that last little push uh, into the place where they need to go to, to change their life and continue to change their life. And so there's hundreds, countless of people that you've done that for. Mm-hmm. And on behalf of those that have made it to Help Us Live, thank you. And all the other places. And I can only imagine the family members, the moms and dads and spouses uh, that would be so eternally grateful for what you've done to yeah, encourage people. To take a step to continue to change their life. So thank you for coming and sharing your story so bravely and boldly. And thanks for all of you that are listening to make this possible. If you would do us a favor, it's a free podcast, but if you would do us a favor by sharing this wherever you might be listening, rating it, giving us a big five-star rating and telling us why, subscribing wherever you might be listening to this, we would sure love it. Or just tell a friend, right, Ellen? You can always tell a friend. Absolutely. All your friends want to know what you're listening to. Haven't you seen those posts everywhere? Like, what's your top five podcasts right now? Make sure it's the Hopecast. Put us up wherever you're watching. Share on social media. We'll be so grateful. We can't wait to visit with you next time. But until then, remember on the Hopecast that God is love, change is possible, and hope is alive.